She's the girl who stole my... Well, let's go back, well, right back to the beginning. You were born in Woking briefly. You moved straight away to London, didn't you? I did, yeah. So I was, uh, my mother was evacuated there during the war. And you changed your name to avoid confusion between um, you and Jerry? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Between <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis and Jerry Lewis. Yes, well, that's confusing alone, isn't it? Yeah, and apart from that, Ian, I mean, um, I, I was getting problems with... Because um, in the early 1960s, 1961, I went to work in Australia, first of all, for, on, on a three-month television contract. Yeah. I subsequently went to work there every year, right through until 1971. Uh, but uh, in the early years, you know, you had to fill out a boarding form on the plane, and it, like, you had to fill it out in the name of your passport. Right. Uh, but, but, but I used to put down... Uh, Mark Winter on the card quite often, um, forgetting or not realising that it had to be the passport. And I always get held up at customs going into Australia. And there would be, after my first visit particularly, there would be some press there waiting to see me. And uh, they got fed up with waiting or they were waiting too long. And it was a bit of a hassle, really. So it was my agent proposed it. Actually. He said, look, you know, he said, you know, are you wedded to your your birth name? And I said, well, <laughs> I said, my, my mother chose it, well, my mother and father, but I'm actually wedded to it. Uh, so I decided to change it to my professional name, which was probably a good idea. And actually, it's interesting to note that a lot of people who were born during the war period yeah. were also christened Terry or Terrence. Okay. You know, there's Matt Monroe, there was Craig Douglas, there was Adam Faith. Yeah. It was Ter- Terry Dean. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. So in actual fact, another we didn't need another Terry on the block, really, did we? <laughs> <laughs> Terry's all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, now, you you were a very successful choir boy, weren't you? you some prestigious places you, you sang in. Yeah, I was lead choir boy um, at my... Uh, it, was my it was my headmaster at my primary school who started to be singing solo in front of the school, and it was he, he recommended that my mother should take me to the church over the road and join the local choir. Yeah. Uh, because it would be beneficial for me, and indeed she did, took him at his word, and I became the uh, head choir boy there and was singing solos and stuff by the time I was all about 11, I suppose, 11, 11, 11 years of age. And also, um, he very kindly, this headmaster, paid for me to have some singing lessons uh, with one woman called uh, Doreen Thomas in Bromley, quite near where we lived. Yeah. So I had those for about uh, six months, uh, every week, once a week, and I think that was all very beneficial. And uh, yeah, I went to sing at the uh, Albert Hall when I was uh, 11 and a half. Wow. Or the Train or Festival. Never dreaming that I'd be back there again twice in my late teens singing with Hill. On pop shows, it was extraordinary, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I, I had some uh, really interesting and fascinating opportunities. In fact, I had a place offered me at uh, the Canterbury um, uh, Choir School. Yeah. But at the time, my mother didn't want me to go away from home, so um, that, that was the end of that, you know. So, yeah. I, can, I can understand that. I was the firstborn child. Yeah. My mother had five others, but um, I think she was a bit... Um, I was the only child by her first marriage, so she, she was, I think... Sure. Didn't, yeah. So how did you get into the pop business? Well, I used to sing in, uh, I always wanted to be, from the time I sort of discovered that I had a voice through singing in, in the choir, I mean, it sounds like one of those gospel singers, they all say that, don't they? Oh, yeah, gospel. <laughs> yeah. well, it wasn't quite like that, but no, I discovered no. I had a voice, and I really loved singing, um, and I thought, if I could make my career singing, I'd, be, I'd probably be a very happy boy. So from the age of about, um, oh, I suppose, 14, I used to go to a, a local dance hall, and they had a visiting group every every weekend, people like Rory Blackwell or Rory Storm, those kind of people, yeah, and or Dickie Pride, and I, and I used to think, God, oh, I think I can get out there and do that. Anyway, we had a, a fellow on our council estate where I lived who had a band 
which I knew of, uh, called Hank Fryer and the Rockefellers. And every Saturday, uh, he had a regular gig at the co-op dance hall in Peckham. You may remember, a lot of, lot of departmental stores had dance halls above yes. the stores. In yes, they did. Woolworths, the co-op, places like that. Yeah. And uh, they would have things going on. Sometimes they had a snooker hall as well. And I used to frequent this place and, uh, you know, enjoy the music. And they had a couple of dances a couple of times a week. Just, well, they're called discos now, aren't they? But <laughs> yeah. in, those, you know. in those days, they were fully lit. There was no dark lighting and mood lighting. It was no. just, you know, open plan. So uh, I just loved Love singing, and um, well, I left school at 15, but just prior to that, I'd be take, I started to take stage newspaper, and uh, I took myself up to the West End and uh, auditioned for a couple of things in a couple of seedy nightclubs, which was ridiculous because I was far too young. Yeah. Um, I never remember. I remember going up with a sheet music copy of Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire, and the pianist was a, re- a really Humpty Dumpty pianist who couldn't play it, so you know, it, was, <laughs> it was a disaster, really. I was singing it more like a ballad. <laughs> and um, also, of course, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar was big news, in Old Compton Street and um, once I left school I used to take myself uh, up west as we used to say there was this kind of a chicken wire grating over window which was pavement level um, which led down to the basement it was the basement downstairs and that's where a lot of performers used to go and I remember uh, lying on the pavement to, to peer down through this chicken wire into the basement to, to, to listen and to hear who was playing there. You know, Cliff came down there in the shadows, I remember. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was really, I think, the lengths one goes to. Yeah, I, I started to um, uh, sing in various dance halls. I went to this chap who had this band on my estate, Hank Fryer, whose real name was Alan Fryer, who was a Coleman by day, but on Saturdays and Sundays, he was a, a rock and roll singer in the sort of Elvis tradition. Yeah. And I, so I said, can I come to your gig and help you with your stuff? Because, uh, you know, I mean, amplifiers and things in those days were minuscule compared to what they are today. Yes. So I'd help them in with, their, with the drums and everything else. And uh, I plucked up my carriage when I was about 16. And I said, just, just, so when you, when you have your break, I used to go over the pub for a few pints in, in, in the middle of the set at the dance hall uh, on Saturdays. Yeah. I said, uh, can, I, can I go up and do a couple of numbers with your band? He said, yeah, I think that'd be all right. So anyway, I had a chat with the, with the band. It was a four-piece and um, two guitars, bass and drums. And so I got up and I, I started to get up every uh, regularly every Saturday and sing things like Dream Lover and uh, Teenager in Love and all those sort of yeah, yeah. hits at the time. And um, one Saturday, uh, when I was 16 and a half, nearly 16 and a few months, chap came up to me afterwards, um, introduced himself. His name was Ray McKenda. And uh, he said, have you ever thought about being a professional pop singer? I mean, that sounds really simple, doesn't it? Simplistic. Yeah, yeah. And I said, uh, yeah, I have, actually. I said, yeah. I said, I've actually made a record. He said, oh, really? Who for? I said, well, it was a private record. I said, I made it in my lunch hour. Because at that time, I'd left school at 15. Yeah. And I was working at the time in a place called the um, Solicitor's Law Stationery and Printer Society <laughs> in Fetter Lane. Yeah. Yeah, try, try saying that when you've had a few. Yeah. Uh, I heard about this, or read about this place in Oxford Street, Bath Bond Street tube station, where HMV was. Yeah. You could go and make your own record for 30 bob, you know, £1.10. Yes. So I went along with a sheet, with a sheet music copy of um, two songs, uh, I May Never Pass This Way Again, which was a hit at the time by Ronnie Hilton and Perry Como. Yeah. And the other song I took on a sheet music copy was uh, Buddy Holly's It's So Easy. You yes. Know it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy to I booked an appointment there and then I went along in my lunch hour, literally within the hour, and you could go in then and you could cut two sides and they provided the pianist that was all included in the, in the 30 box and you cut two sides and then within an hour you could be walking away with that record under your arm. Amazing. Which I, and I've still got it. Wow. It's dreadful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he said, oh, he said, well, 
have you done anything with it? I said, well, yeah. I said, I, said, I gave it to, to an aunt of mine who works at EMI. And he said, oh, yeah, well, what happened? I said, well, she said she knew a lot of people because she worked there and uh, maybe she could get something done about it. It transpired, Ian, actually, that she was a tea lady. Oh, uh, nice. Anyway, uh, she did take the record in and um, I, I did get it sent back my home address uh, in, in, the, in the council state but it was a thank you but no thanks one of those you know yeah uh, so it never went any further than that and he said oh he said, well, I'd like to hear you sometime because it was a, it was a 78 I said yeah okay so um, anyway he lived in Chelsea and um, we arranged to meet and I, uh, I played the record and he said mm, yeah uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, he said, look, um, he said, I'm interested in being your manager. He said, I think you have potential. He said, but I must warn you, you know, if, you, if we're lucky enough to be successful and even, even get a record contract, it can be quite a short-lived career. I said, oh, oh really? What, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, if you get one hit record, you might get uh, two or three, four years out of it uh, doing some tours. He said, and after, I said, well, what happens after that? He said, well, you resume your, either your civilian life or you go on to do something, something else that you weren't doing before. I said, oh. So it was a bit, bit doubtful, really. Yeah, yeah. But I, he said, what I like to do, he said, he said I, I, I do a bit of uh, amateur DJing myself at Battersea Town Hall and the Civic Theatre Poplar and at uh, Hackney 59 Club, uh, which was, was a youth club where actually Cliff Richard was the president, as a matter of fact. Okay. And I can arrange for you to, um, to sing with uh, a the, the couple of groups that play at these places and uh, come down and rehearse and you could do a couple of numbers there to get some stage experience, more stage experience. I said, okay. Um, so I went along with all that and uh, sure enough, it, it was good news. And he said, after the while, a few months, he said, look, I think we could go into a studio now and, and cut a few tracks. So we went into a place uh, just off uh, Tottenham Court Road called uh, Magnograph. Right. The name of the company. And we got five sides. One of them was I Go Eat. Yes, just, by Neil Sedaka. Yeah, and uh, no, no one knows what I've been through, blah, 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 all the love I've uh, cried, tears I've cried for you. None of those the teenage ballads, you know. Another one was an up-tempo version of that lucky old son. Yeah, so we cut five tracks, and then sure enough, Ray sent them off to all the, all the major record companies, AMI, Decca, and uh, Philips. Yes. And uh, none of them were interested. They all said, no, no, thanks. But at the time also, you could make a demo record of a song they were trying to promote to get uh, recorded by an artist who was already established. Yes. So um, Ray had a connection with a chap called Jimmy Phillips, who I think was KPM Music at the time in Denmark Street. And he took me along there one day uh, with, with a, a, a rhythm guitarist. I sang two songs to Jimmy Phillips in the hopes of getting employed to make some demo records for established artists. I, I sang these two songs, and the person who was in the other inner office who was talking to Jimmy Phillips at the time, I didn't know about, but it was it was Lionel Bart. Oh, oh. And he came into the main office, and uh, he said, oh, you're finished now then. He said, uh, he said are you recording with somebody already? I said, no. He said, oh, he said, so what, you're trying to get a record contract, are you? I said, well, yes, we are. Ray was there. Ray said, yes. He said, um, we haven't had a great deal of success. And Lionel, Lionel said, um, have you tried Decca? Ray said, yeah, we have, actually. He said, who, who, did you, who did you send the record to? And Ray said, oh, I don't know, the A&R department. Because Ray was as green as I was. Yeah. I mean, he really, he really was. He, he said, it's a phone number. He said, ring this, this chap up. It was Frank Lee, who was the head of A&R. No. Ray rang this chap up, uh, Frank Lee, and he said, well, he said, who recommended you? And Ray said, oh, Lionel Bart. Now, at the time, as you may remember or not, um, Lionel's score for Oliver was recorded on Decca, was the first cast album. Yeah. So that was his connection. 
connection with Frank Lee. Right. So uh, Frank said, oh, oh Lionel, okay. Uh, all right, he said, well, 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 come along, come along with your, your protégé and uh, we'll, we'll listen to him sing. So we trotted along to uh, the embankment to Decker House, which was a massive building then facing the tent. Yeah. Went into Frank Lee's office and uh, he had a pianist there and I sang uh, one song, I think called Just About This Time Tomorrow. Okay. Uh, which is a minor hit in America. Uh, he said, he said well, do, you, do you know anything else? And I said, well, uh, I can't think of anything else. He said, well, and the pianist said, do you know the song The Glory of Love, which was a quite slow ballad? So I sang the remnants of the words that I can remember, la 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 in between times. Yeah. And uh, Frank Lee said, uh, yeah, he said, yeah, he said to Ray, um, yeah, he said, I'll be happy to offer you a one record contract. So he offered us a one record contract. And he said, if we, if we do it, he said, I haven't got a song for you yet. He said, but um, he said, we could do Glory of Love, which I think suits you as a ballad singer. We could do that on the other side. He said, well, we'll wait and see what happens. He said, but uh, I've got a song, but I'll get in touch with you. So we left the office. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Ray had also forged a link with somebody from the NME, who also had a link with Norrie Paramore, who was Cliff Richard's uh, A&R man yeah. on Columbia. Between the two of them, it was a reason I would go along to Abbey Road in the big studio, you know, where the Beatles and yeah. other people have recorded, and an audition for Nori Paramore. So I did. He too offered me a, a record contract, a, a one record contract. And Ray, being a businessman, went back to Frank Lee and said, look, we've been offered a, a one when, he, when Frank Lee rang. And he said, we, we've got a song for you. And it was Image of a Girl, which was a big hit in America by yeah. Boris Vocal Group. And he said, I've got a song for Mark. And Ray said, OK, well, he said, so can I just ask you something? He said, we've been offered a one record contract by Nori Paramore, EMI. Uh, he said, now, he said, if you offer us a two record contract, I'd be prepared to sign with Decca with my artist. So Frank Lee said, yeah, OK, which was good because he gave yes. me two opportunities. Yes, it did. Yes. I, I'd auditioned for Harold Fielding, the impresario, who was putting on a, he had lots of shows going on, um, but he put on a summer show on the pier, actually, at that year, 1960, uh, at Bournemouth, an afternoon show called the 2.30 Special. Okay. Sort of like the 6.30 Special, you know, my deal, yes, BBC yeah. program. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, a few pop people on there. He had Michael Cox, who had a number yes. one with Angela I Jones. He had a guy called Cuddly Dudley from Oh Boy. He had Cherry Wayner and her cousin Red on sax, who were also on Oh Boy. He had another guy called Mark Anthony, who had a minor hit record. He was introduced by Ted Rogers. All right, yes. And I auditioned for Harold for this um, afternoon because uh, he knew I had a record coming out. He thought it might be profitable. So he gave me a spot on the uh, afternoon show at Bournemouth. I went down there for, I think it was I think it was six or eight weeks. Coincidentally, at the Pavilion Theatre, appearing that same year, was Marty, along with Dora Bryan and, and some Reginald Dixon, I think some, some comic. Mm. So I did the summer show down there and uh, the record came out and Decker did a lot of good work marketing and uh, it was on Jukebox Jury. It was voted a miss, actually. But what <laughs> helped, I think, there was a degree of competition because another fellow called uh, Nelson Keane also covered it under on EMI. Right. And, and also the Safaris Vocal Group version was out. Yes. So there are three versions out. And uh, mine was the one that was getting the most airplay, which was very encouraging. Yes. And uh, although it was voted a miss on Jukebox Jury, it started to get played on Radio Luxembourg. It entered the charts and it went to number 11. As I lie awake, resting from the day, I can hear the clock passing time away. 
1961, of course, Dream Girl, a potential Eurovision entry, wasn't it? Yeah, we entered that at the Eurovision, uh, but it was different in those days, the Eurovision. They had heats in this country before you went to the final. Yeah, uh, and in, in, I remember in, that. And in the heat that I was in, it only came fourth, but it, it, it was a big seller, actually. Yes, catchy tunes. tunes. It was very clever. Even in Oliver, we think like uh, I'd do anything. I mean, they're very catchy, memorable songs, pretty much straight away. Anyway, um, Kick Up Leaves came out, and, and Dream Girl, and exclusively Yours was also a minor hit. Yeah. On Decca, another one, Girl for Every Day, didn't do much. The last one I recorded on Decca, which was in 1961, was Heaven's Plan, which only I think was went to about 35 or something. And they decided then that uh, you no, know, I wasn't worth keeping on board, so they uh, decided to terminate my contract. But my recording manager by then was a chap called Dick Rowe, uh, who was very successful with lots of people. And he, he had a very close friend who was, I think a bit, I think Dick was a bit of a mentor to Tony Hatch. Yeah. And Tony Hatch was then the youngest uh, and the, the chief A&R man at Pie Records. And apparently, because I'd recorded one of Tony's songs when I was a decker called Presence of Mind, which is a, a rather nice little uh, song, did it as a B-side, and Tony had sent a note to my manager to say how much he liked the arrangement and the way I sang it. Tony uh, had a bet with Dick Rowe that if I was allowed to go to Pi before the end of my contract with Decca, that uh, he could get a hit record for me pretty quickly and make me a, a reasonable uh, recording success all around. Not just 
once, but lots of times. I don't know what the bet was. Uh, yeah. I, I went to Pi, and sure enough, the first record I recorded was a song that Tony had noticed was racing up the American charts, which was Venus in Blue Jeans. She's the girl who stole my heart My Venus in blue jeans Is the Cinderella I adore yeah, it's by Jimmy Clanton, She's my, my very special angel winter. Thank you. Someone else, and I must be true. 